The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome out to the Brooksy Kleber Memorial Lecture Series, and we'll go ahead and get started. Today, we will get started, right? Okay. Uh, today is May 2nd, 2019. And on behalf of the director and staff of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Dr. Brooks E. Kleber Memorial Lecture Series. Tonight is our second lecture of the 2019 Kleber Series, and the speaker's featured books, as you saw when you walked in, are on sale behind the lecture room. We encourage you to purchase a copy of the book uh, for the signing after the uh, lecture, because all of the book sales do go to the Army Heritage Center Foundation and their efforts to support everything we do here at the AHEC. Tonight's lecture honors the memory of Dr. Brooks E. Kleber, former Deputy Chief Historian of the Office uh, of the Chief of Military History. I would like to introduce retired Brigadier General Harold Nelson to take a few moments to tell you a little bit about Dr. Kleber and the legacy we are here to remember tonight. Thank you. Because of the technical difficulties, I think I've said enough about Brooks. And I'm now honored to present to you our speaker for the evening, Mr. J.D. Dickey. He's been writing on American history narratives for 20 years, concentrating on society and culture. His previous book, Empire of Mud, was a New York Times bestseller. For those of you who are interested in the early history of our nation's capital, uh, you'll soon find out why it was a bestseller. Wonderful book. Mr. Dickey has also written articles on a broad range of historical, political, and travel-related topics for newspapers and magazines, and appeared in media from C-SPAN's book, TV, to public radio international program, The Takeaway, as well as lecturing for the New York Historical Society and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. His most recent book is Rising in Flames, Sherman's March, and the Fight for, the, for a New Nation, and he has lectured on this subject in Atlanta. And before the evening began, he told us that he hopes to have an even more engaged audience here than he had in Atlanta. J Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. J.D. Dickey. General, thank you. Thank you. It's true, I uh, just flew in from Atlanta, which is interesting when my manager suggested it would be a good idea to talk at the War College in Atlanta. I said, War College I get, but Atlanta, what now? You sure about that? But it was an interesting challenge because I hope to say the same things to the people of Atlanta that I'm saying to you. Because I think there's one story to be told about General Sherman. And I don't have to equivocate, and I don't have to twist the facts because the facts are clear. And I'll get to what those are in a moment. But I want to begin this lecture by beginning with an encounter I had earlier today at the Pennsylvania State Capitol. So I had been to the Capitol for the first time ever. I'm sure most of you had toured it uh, many times. But it was interesting because I was able to sit in the Senate chamber all by myself. It was completely absent of tour groups. 
and of politicians. And I noticed that on the left side of the speaker's dais that there are two large paintings of Gettysburg. Now, one is General Meade reviewing the troops, and the other is an almost Can you, can you still hear me? I think that's great. Thank you, Carl. Great, I can move. Um, the other is an almost religious painting of the hallowed nature of that battle. Basically, we see something that's intrinsic to the American character, this idea that men sacrifice themselves for the greater good in one of the most important and crucial wars in our history that proves the very foundation and the purpose of the US military. And I was reminded, looking at this, that Gettysburg is one of those holy moments, I think I'm comfortable in calling it that, that most Americans can get behind. But Americans have a tougher time when we talk about the Western theater, and when we specifically talk about Sherman's March to the Sea, also known as the Savannah Campaign, which occurs in November and December of 1864. And by implication, the campaigns leading up to that, including the culmination of the Atlanta Campaign, which includes the siege, evacuation, and destruction of the city. And so we're left with a lot of myths, a lot of misconceptions about the man who undertook this campaign. There's a popular notion that William Sherman is some sort of rogue. Basically, if you look at the media and how he's interpreted, the idea is that after Chattanooga and General Grant going north to uh, Northern Virginia to lead the Army of the Potomac and act as general in chief, that Sherman was somehow left alone in Georgia, and that he went crazy and just started destroying things. And in fact, Sherman's, many of his uh, portraits kind of lend an idea to this. I mean, he, the look of intensity on the man's face is coupled with a slight amount of anxiety, as you would, could fully imagine. And it's not just the appearance of a great general, it's a conflicted general, and a general who stands at the center of so many of these misconceptions. But what I'm going to talk to you about today is something about trying to allay some of these ideas and to understand Sherman's ideas about hard war in the context of overall military strategy to suggest that Sherman did not depart from the official rules set by Grant and he as he understood them, the strategy, but rather if Sherman is to be faulted for anything, it is the failure to execute certain aspects of his own strategy. So the reason he is controversial today is not necessarily because of the hard war strategy. That was fought in different theaters of the Civil War. We saw that predating the March to the Sea. But rather, it's because on this march, Sherman in key ways failed to execute that strategy. And that has implications uh, for contemporary leadership of troops as well. And all of these things are important in fully understanding uh, what, why this man is so important to history. So before I go any further, what I want to say is that this book, Rising in Flames, which I wrote, uh, was intended as a social history of the march to the sea and the campaigns around it. It was not strictly intended as a look at military strategy. And indeed, the first third or so of the book sets up various characters and talks about their importance to the overall Civil War and what they mean. And I'm going to briefly mention that just so you have a sense of what my book is about, should you happen to pick it up and expect strategy right out of the gate. Because to me, it was important to highlight 
various characters who brought a certain distinct perspective to the war from the perspective of the North. Because the story of the North in, in terms of the invasion of Georgia is not one that most of us are familiar with. The number one story most of us are familiar with when it comes to Sherman's March to the Sea is, anyone? Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell. Now, when I was in Atlanta, I didn't speak at the Margaret Mitchell house. That was a relief. Um, I spoke at the History Center, but nonetheless, we know that from the journals of Southern women talking about the depredations of Sherman's troops and these ideas of this sort of extreme behavior. And so when I wrote about this book, one thing that I didn't want was to include too much of the Southern perspective. I actually included very little of it. I was interested more in how the war played out in the journals and the diaries of Northern soldiers because that's the best way, along with the general's own letters and his memoirs, to get a sense of what these campaigns were really about, not the incendiary comments of people that he had invaded. Those may have value, but I was interested in telling the story of the North, which is an underappreciated story. And by telling the story of the North, I'm telling the story about the United States, basically what was left of the United States, the Republic, and the people that were fighting these battles. A few of them included immigrants, now, when we think of immigrants in the armed forces, um, you'd have to imagine that at the time, about 13% of the US nation was made up of immigrants. But of the two million people who fought for the Union in the Civil War, 500,000 of them were born overseas. 70% of those 500,000 were either German or Irish. Now, a lot of the Germans especially are at the core of my narrative including a, a, a colonel named Friedrich Hecker. Hecker comes overseas, you know, he's fleeing a revolution in Germany. It, it's not actually Germany at the time, it's one of the German states with a name I can't pronounce. And he comes over and he tries to impart his radical views to a lot of very conservative Catholic German farmers in Illinois. It doesn't go over very well, but what does go over is the fact Hecker is considered a hero just because he tried to fight for freedom in the German state where he came from. And so Hecker, like other Germans, becomes an influential and key leader in this fight. Now, he has other frustrations that I don't have enough time to get into, but needless to say, his Germans of the 24th and 82nd Illinois Volunteer Infantry are a group well worth studying, and a group that really has a large chip on, on their shoulder, because if you know Chancellorsville, and I'm sure a lot of you do, you may remember that Joseph Heck Hooker wasn't very good about taking blame for the debacle there. In fact, he blamed the so-called Flying Dutchmen, Germans. And so by the time this campaign comes around, the Germans have a lot to prove, and they make up a large portion of these Western armies. And don't forget, the people who largely invaded Georgia and the Carolinas were not some of your descendants here. This was not the Eastern Theater. These were men from the Midwest. Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana. And it was these men, for the most part, with the exception of certain corps like the 20th, who ended up in Georgia. And they brought their very distinct perspective to the struggle. The other aspect of the social transformation that's important in my book is the growth of evangelical religion. I follow one uh, fellow in the book, a reverend named John Haidt who is a great, great source. And if you've read his journals, you know that he is beyond compare because what he does is, on one hand, he talks about the terror of slavery and what it means and how 
disgusting and, and horrific it is to a modern perspective, or at least any perspective, a godly perspective. And at the same time, he is wary about some of the destruction that he sees before him, whether authorized or unauthorized. Some of the destruction he approves of. Burning plantations is just fine because these men have created countless resources of sin to draw from. But then he sees also poor people suffering, and it, it troubles him. And he writes about this, and that's why he's a, he's a great guide into this. And as the war declines, as the war finishes, we also see in Confederate Union forces that there is this growth of revival of religion. And no doubt these experiences have something to do about this. The other major factor I talk about is women. That women, long before Rosie the Riveter, were running farms and businesses and working in munitions factories while their husbands and fathers were away at the war. And that this had a real impact, especially in the North, after the war. Because women didn't just do this, they didn't fill in, but some like Mary Livermore, whom, who I profile, set up soldiers' aid societies to help with food and clothing to the troops on the front that the commissary and the quartermaster couldn't provide. And she's an amazing figure because this woman ends up marshalling the support of fellow Illinoisans to the degree of setting up 4,000 societies in Illinois alone and countless more in the region. The amount of supplies that these women, including her and those of that region, ultimately contributed is in the millions and indeed may be uncountable. But she's another critical figure in this, that even though she's not on the front lines of the invasion, she's helping supply the troops, which is critical. And it's important to remember it goes beyond simply what the military is able to provide. But the other aspect I want to provide, and it's a good segue back into Sherman, is this idea of what these troops had in terms of their views as they started and how they ended up changing their own views of slavery and uh, the social conditions as they evolved. And the, the person I give as an example is uh, General John Logan. Now, John Logan begins the war um, as a legislator. He's a, a, a congressman from Southern Illinois. And he is well known for writing the Black Law of Illinois, which basically forbids any African-Americans from visiting or traveling to the state or settling there. That comes in 1853. That law is not unique. But as he goes on, he discovers the condition of slavery. He sees people being manacled and tortured in various ways. And he eventually becomes an abolitionist and discovers a different side to what the war, what he thinks the war is about. And his experience is not held by every man. A lot of people are just fighting for their families or their states or their regiments. They're not necessarily fighting for a larger cause, but some are, and he's one of them. And after the war, he changes parties and becomes a Republican and one of the best-known abolitionists in the US. And he also plays a critical role at several battles. So having said what my book is generally about, I want to get to the focus of the book in the middle and latter parts and my, the focus of my speech here today, and that's Sherman's military strategy. Now, when we think about General Sherman, we have to understand that this is a man who prides the military above all things. Uh, even before the war begins, he talks about the doubts he has about society at, at almost every level and people in it. He even describes himself as a dead cock in the pit to his wife because he's lost faith in himself, but he refuses to lose faith in the army. And in fact, he sees it as a protector against some of the troubles that have brought down other nations like Mexico. And I, I, it's a very good quote that I want to, uh, to mention to you in terms of what he talked about, in terms about 
anarchy. He says, in the country, for years, this tendency to anarchy has gone on till now, every state, every county, and every town. It makes and enforces the local prejudices as the law of the land. This is the real trouble. It is not slavery. It is the democratic spirit, which substitutes mere opinions for law. So what he's talking about is the contention and the craziness that has uh, animated the country before the Civil War. He largely doesn't believe that people should even be voting during the war. He thinks that the military has a prime role in controlling anarchy and by extension secession. Slavery is not his concern, and it never will be during the war, although some of his policies have the effect of creating abolition for other reasons, but rather is the control of anarchy and secession. And he hates secession deeply. If you read any of his letters, he is one of the firmest voices of the time against uh, giving rebels any particular credence for their cause. So Sherman, by the time of the Georgia campaign, of the Atlanta campaign specifically, has been through a lot in battle. Now, before the war, of course, you may know that he's failed in a number of civilian occupations. He's uh, been a bank manager in San Francisco and New York. He's been a lawyer. He's been the president of a streetcar company. And he has run a military semin seminary in Louisiana, which would later become LSU. And that's actually a job he likes because by, for the most part, he likes Southerners, which is another little ironic touch here. However, he doesn't like secessionists. And so when the war begins, he goes north. But he's wary about accepting a command. He does see action at Bull Run as a colonel. And then shortly after that, Lincoln is pressing him to accept a role. And so he becomes the general in command of the Department of the Cumberland. And it is here where he, rep he establishes a sort of reputation or notoriety for being unstable. Because he truly has difficult moments there. He sees uh, rebels behind every hill, basically. It's almost, it has shades of George McClellan, overestimating the numbers of uh, the enemy that were lurking. But to Sherman takes it very personally, and some suspect he has a nervous breakdown. However, I'm not going to get into psychobiography tonight, because that isn't my job, luckily. I'm just going to say that after uh, the Cincinnati Commercial newspaper airs a headline, or prints a headline that says, General William T. Sherman insane, his reputation plummets, and he has to rely on his defenders in Washington, including his father-in-law, Thomas Ewing, to dig him out. And he achieves a certain success at the beginning by demonstrating bravery and, and competence in some of his early roles, like at the District of Cairo, where he actually cedes authority to U.S. Grant, who technically he has, he has seniority over, and he says, I have faith in you. Command me in any way, right around the time of Fort Donelson. And after that, Sherman joins uh, Grant's forces and then sees action at Shiloh and at Vicksburg, Mississippi, Alabama, and he becomes one of the critical uh, corps, commander in, uh, corps commanders and eventually the head of the Army of the Tennessee, which was previously, both of those were actually previously commands held by U.S. Grant himself. So now we find ourselves trying to figure out with Sherman what to do about the rebels. Now, Chattanooga has just happened. Chattanooga is a fascinating story, and the way Chattanooga uh, evolves as a campaign and as a legend is, is interesting, but I won't get too far into it now. But needless to say, Grant achieved such, such success that he is promoted to uh, be general-in-chief. So he's going to direct the Army of the Potomac while he leaves Sherman to head the military division of the Mississippi, which is 
not all of the Western theater, but a good part of it. And most importantly, it's the part that's going to invade Georgia in May of 1864. So here we have Sherman and Grant and Lincoln deciding what to do. And that's where the beginning of undercutting this first myth comes in. This notion that somehow Sherman was a freelance general, that he just did his own thing. But actually by that time, these figures, these critical figures, along with Henry Halleck, the chief of staff, had already decided what they were going to do. In other words, if armies could not be defeated in battle, and they would try to do that, that was Lincoln's idea that armies had to be annihilated, then a strategy of exhaustion would take place by which you attack the material resources of the enemy, go after the railroads, the um, means of, uh, of, uh, of arming the troops, the arsenals, the magazines, as well as the storehouses, the cotton gins, the depots, and everything else that enabled the enemy to wage war. And that may include the crops of the enemy in order to feed the troops and to clothe them. So the question became, how should we go about this? And there are different ideas as to where the uh, forces should go. They could go down to Mobile, or they could go to Savannah. Um, there are different theaters, different possibilities, but it's eventually decided that this march on Atlanta seems to be the most logical and necessary campaign. And it's not only because of military reasons. And in mentioning this, I want to say that political considerations have always played a part in any discussion of Sherman. And in fact, the need to go after Atlanta didn't just deal with the need to uh, strike down this city, which was at the hub of a number of major railroads and had munitions factories and um, various machine shops and other means of creating weaponry. But it was also because at that time, and this is getting close to the middle of 1864, the no northern public was losing heart in the war. In fact, some people like Horace Greeley think the war is lost and that a peace candidate should replace Lincoln at the ticket, uh, the Republican ticket. And others are wondering what the Union is going to do because of all the suffering that has occurred. It's been a full year since Gettysburg and Vicksburg enlivened the Union with victories. And so it's decided that Atlanta has to be captured. And to ensure the president's reelection, it should be captured by November of 1864. This is critical. And it's important to remember at this point the dovetailing of the military strategy and the political need because they do overlap. If the Democratic candidate, George McClellan, is elected in November, he has promised to prosecute the war, but he has a vice presidential candidate named George Pendleton who has sided with the Copperheads, which are all in favor of peace with the South. So even if McClellan begins to make progress, you know, another, more, another few uh, troublesome battles which result in a lot of casualties might just doom the effort, and they might be ac accept the Confederates' bid to sue for peace. So the election is critical, and it's part of the military strategy, and we have to see that any time we talk about Atlanta. Because the people at the time, at the top, understood what it was about and uh, appreciated the stakes involved. Now, on this particular campaign, I'm going to attempt to use the clicker. And if this fails, uh, let me know. But uh, we have the, the man he's facing, Joseph Johnston. Johnston is a no friend, or, and vice versa, of Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president. and. Uh, wow. Davis basically sees him as someone who's overly secretive. He doesn't reveal his plans. He doesn't seem to have a coherent strategy. But during the North Georgia campaign in May and June, 
uh, Johnston does what he can with an undermanned force. We have about 110,000 Union troops facing off about 60,000 Confederates at the beginning. And Sherman describes it as a big Indian war, what they do. So essentially, uh, as Sherman proceeds south from Chattanooga going to Atlanta, uh, this is a, an elaborate war of maneuver that people have described as a dance, as how each enemy attempts to outflank the other. And Sherman has a few opportunities, like at Resaca, to destroy the army uh, under Johnson, but it, it doesn't quite happen. And so eventually, there are a few major battles, as we know, at New Hope, New Hope Church, Kennesaw Mountain, this sort of thing. But the uh, overall effect is that Sherman ends up at the gates of Atlanta by June. Now, at that time, uh, in fact, do I have a, an image of this? I do. That's the North Georgia campaign. So the reason I'm putting this up there, even though I realize it's small, don't worry about reading everything, and I, I will point to various things from this perspective. I want you to look at the blackest line here. So that's Grant's former command. That's Sherman's former command and the current command of James McPherson. And that is the Army of the Tennessee. And the reason that's important is because that black line shows Sherman's brilliance in this campaign. And it'll show his brilliance at Atlanta, which I don't have a map for. But it shows the maneuverability and the ability to uh, end up at one side of the flank to another and to uh, basically do things the, that the uh, enemy is not predicting. He ultimately ends up, sends the, um, sends the Army of the Tennessee around Decatur, right here, and the rest of the army crossing the Chattahoochee River to invest Atlanta. And this is important because the uh, Army of the Tennessee will play a critical role in the campaigns to come. Now, the person that is facing off against Sherman by this point is a man that's been called someone with the face of an old crusader. There he is. He, he does remind me of a biblical prophet um, in some weird way, perhaps a prophet of his own doom. That is John Bell Hood. Davis replaces Johnston with Hood because he wants somebody to fight. He doesn't want somebody to carefully maneuver and dance and do other things that aren't seen as manly. He wants somebody like Hood who is lacking a leg and the use of an arm that he had shot off at Gettysburg and Chickamauga, two particularly bloody battles. And here's Hood, and Hood will fight. Sherman's delighted by this, because he knows by this point, going back to strategy, that these wars are going to be won on the defensive when engagement with armies happens. And he knows that exhaustion of the military resources is essential to defeating these armies. But Hood is still fighting these battles like it's Napoleonic Europe of the 19th century, sending men out in mass charges to face enemy guns. And if you look at how the Battle of Ezra Church plays out, it's shocking at the losses. You know, it's three times the number of Confederate dead as to Federal simply because they're attacking fortified lines. It's insane. But Davis thinks that uh, Hood is a good man and appropriate to the era. This is the Battle of Atlanta. This is not my map. This is a map by Britt McCarley from the Atlanta and Savannah's campaign, U.S. Army Center of Military History. This is a very slim volume. It's a great book for maps. I thoroughly approve of it. Now, what I want to show you here is just, I'm not going to go too much into detail about the Battle of Atlanta, but I do think it's fascinating because 
Hood actually surprises Sherman's forces. Uh, Grinville Dodge of the 16th Corps, uh, he does actually fairly well in, in, in predicting where uh, the Corps of uh, Hardy, I believe, is going to end up. And he anticipates the movement and is prepared for it. However, between the 16th and the 17th Corps, between Blair and Dodge, a gap opens up. And the Confederates stream through it. And I want to mention that the Battle of Atlanta is less well known than the Siege of Atlanta and the Burning of Atlanta. But there's no good reason for it, because the Battle of Atlanta is critical to this. And uh, before I talk about this again, I want to quote James McPherson. Great, not the general, but the great historian. And he says, there was nothing preordained about the North's victory. They had superior resources. And yet, at the same time, so did the British in the Revolutionary War. It's not just superior resources that win. It's better soldiers, better general, and taking advantage of key moments in, in certain key battles. And one of these comes when the 16th and 17th Corps separated, when the head of the Army of the Tennessee, also named James McPherson, is killed with his signal officers as he is, because he doesn't realize there's a gap. And the army is suddenly without a head. And so the person who rises to that is John Logan. Now, the Corps of Blair ends up in an impossible situation. You can't really see it on the map. But what we have is that the Confederates have outflanked the 17th Corps. They're in here. But they're also here. And they're also down here. So Blair's men have to fight on both sides of their earthworks and they have to fight against their flank. They're shooting in different directions with the enemy advancing on them, closing in on them, and some men resort to using their bayonets, which is rare in the Civil War, or their gun butts, or their knives, or even their fists to fight off these men. And throughout the afternoon of July 22nd, 1864, it becomes a, just a disaster, or it seems like it's going to be a disaster, until the line is healed, and it seems that the Confederates have been fought off, but no, in Logan's Corps, while he's not there, the 15th at the very top, the Confederates penetrate the railroad. The railroad cut right here. They come charging through. And again, it looks like a disaster for the US Army at the time. But the person who ends up holding them off, at least at first, is William Sherman strangely enough, because he's got the artillery of the Army of the Ohio, which he's holding back. He's saying, let the boys fight it out. But at the same time, he personally delivers artillery orders to bombard the rebels from their flank, which I think is an amazing image, because his, his headquarters is right there. He's basically getting up from his porch and directing where the gunners should fire. Uh, Logan eventually comes to the rescue. If you see it at the Atlanta Cyclorama, it's a moving moment. It's, it's actually a pro-union. Uh, mural. And you see Logan, you know, waving his hat with his saber, and he rallies the troops, and they finish off the Confederates. And the Battle of Atlanta is finished, and it becomes a signature triumph. And there are his men. So these are the men, most of whom are going to the sea with him. I'll point out just a few, not too many. Here's Sherman. That's Logan. That's Oliver Howard who has taken Logan's place at the head of the Army of the Tennessee. Why is this? Because Logan had a signature achievement. But we have to remember, Logan was a politician before the war, and Sherman doesn't trust politicians. He doesn't even like them. 
And so what happens is Oliver Howard, who is missing an arm himself, gets promoted to run the Army of the Tennessee. And other generals are important. This is William Hazen. He will take uh, command of a division at Fort McAllister and win that critical city that enables the capture of, or win that critical position that enables the capture of Savannah. And here is Jefferson Davis. This guy is not the Confederate president. He is a Union general, also named Jefferson Davis. And he will have a critical role to play on the March to the Sea. We'll see another picture of him later in this. He's not the most photogenic man there is, but that is no matter. What matters is how he, his policy plays out on the March to the Sea. Now, in terms of the march, once Atlanta is captured, which uh, comes at, on September 2nd, 1864, after the Battle of Jonesboro, which is south of Atlanta, that enables Sherman to completely surround the city, cut off its railroads. Hood realizes that Atlanta, that Atlanta is doomed. He, doomed. he doesn't want to be trapped, doesn't want to pull a Pemberton, as in Vicksburg, and he sends his men to Lovejoy Station. So now, Atlanta is under Sherman's control. And one of the first things he does after the explosion of the ordnance train by uh, Hood, which Hood sets off, which devastates some of eastern Atlanta, is he evacuates the citizenry. Now, this is still controversial to, the day, to this day. The city started out with 20,000 people. By this time, it has 3,500. And those people, he, just, he doesn't want them around because he doesn't want to occupy the city. He says, until we can repopulate Georgia, it is useless to occupy it. And Atlanta is the perfect example of that. He wants the people out, and that starts with the people who are still remaining. He does leave a few unionists behind and uh, some freed slaves. But apart from that, Union, uh, his strategy um, for Atlanta is more or less preordained. But at this point, the question becomes, what shall we do next? And he has an, a series of discussions with Lincoln and with Halleck and with Grant by telegraph about what to do. You know, what should we do with this army of 60,000 men? And I say 60,000 because this is important instead of 110,000. What should we do with this army of these men on their next um, campaign? And certainly Mobile is a possibility. Reuniting uh, his forces or uniting them with grants in Virginia to finish off Lee is a possibility. And he could also go to defend Tennessee. Because by October of 1864, Hood has gotten some crazy ideas in his head. And he's actually created some pretty clever ideas for him. The man that Robert E. Lee calls all lion and no fox actually ends up being pretty foxy, if you'll let me use that horrible word. He ends up going into northern Georgia and leading Sherman on a wild goose chase throughout 1864. Sherman is disgusted by this because Hood's motive is to cut off Sherman's railroad line, the thin black line that connects Atlanta with Chattanooga. And Sherman hates this kind of warfare, is following an elusive enemy like this and not really achieving anything in terms of military glory, just basically trying to kill time until Lincoln is reelected, which Lincoln will be because of the capture of Atlanta. And so Sherman is insistent to Grant that he be allowed to divide his forces, send General Thomas north to uh, Nashville and to uh, protect Nashville from Hood's troopers, while Sherman takes the rest of his men on a devastating march through southern Georgia to crush the material resources of Georgia. Now, this is a military innovation. I want to 
you to imagine at the time the risk and the chutzpah this took to divide an army. He has overwhelmed the South and proven that he can with superior numbers, and it seems to work. But he's going to take half of them and send them to Nashville, which isn't even close to the front. And he's going to take the other half on a march that doesn't go through major cities for munitions. In other words, he's not going to Macon or Augusta or Selma, where the arsenals are. He's going to Savannah, and in between is farmland and a few smaller munitions factories and things that uh, certainly need to be wiped out in terms of this strategy of exhaustion. And Lincoln really fears this idea. He not only fears it for its military reality, he fears that what could happen to his reelection if Sherman's men meet with disaster. But because Lincoln is a very smart president, he knows to keep his hands off. Because he's not like General, or excuse me, like Jefferson Davis. You know, Davis has been Secretary of War, and he thinks he knows a few things about fighting. So he's always micromanaging his men to, to a fault. But Lincoln lets, lets his generals decide. And so Grant and Sherman decide on Sherman's idea. But Grant has doubts up until about November 1st. He's still wondering if Sherman can't just go up and get rid of Hood first before he goes on his devastating move through the South. Can't we just take care of Hood before we do anything so risky? But Sherman insists, and Sherman wins. And thus, the march to the sea begins. And there it is, the march to the sea. So in describing this campaign, which we know is a strategy of exhaustion, which we know is all about crippling the military resources of the South, it is important to say that a march like this, while unprecedented and strategically brilliant, incorporates ideas that have previously been established by people, including Grenville, Grenville Dodge, the 16th Corps, as well as Sherman himself. So Sherman in Meridian, Mississippi, has done something like this on a small scale in February of 1864. He's basically conducted a massive raid, gone into Meridian and destroyed a large amount of infrastructure. And he did the same in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, after Vicksburg, just to destroy the area, make sure that, uh, that city couldn't make war anymore. And so he plans to do this in the South and to orchestrate a strategy that will throw the enemy off its rocker. So. Augusta's here. This city is never attacked in the Civil War. Macon is here. This city is only attacked in the last weeks. But he is fainting with his men toward them. And so even right here, even to this point, the Confederates are thrown off guard, and they don't know which cities to guard because there are so many that he could potentially go after. And so with their troops there and there, and as well as Columbus, which is down here, Savannah is more lightly defended than it should be. And so Sherman takes advantage of that. This is not a commensurate uh, series of a commensurate campaign in terms of numbers. There are 62,000 men here with Sherman, and he's facing about 12,000 rebels. These are not rebel yell rebels with you know, lots of training at Chancellorsville. These are Georgia militia troops. A lot of them are old men and young boys. They can't fight. When they try to fight, they are slaughtered at Griswoldville. And they soon learn their lesson. They have no business putting up a fight. And so largely, the southern impedance to Sherman consists of cavalry forces that are trying to get in his way. But here's where we come back to this idea of myth. And 
This is very critical. Sherman called the idea of destroying military infrastructure hard war. That was his term for it. It had been employed before. It has the approval of Grant and, by extension, Lincoln, as well as Henry Halleck, who writes to Sherman and says, we approve of your method of waging war. Sherman is not going rogue in terms of his strategy. All of this has been approved. But why is Sherman's reputation clouded by history? And that has to do with the execution of the strategy. And this is very important because, especially when a general writes down the things he's going to do, he should make sure that the men under him follow these plans. I'm going to review special field order number 120. This is what, how Sherman sends his men into the field. No entering private homes or using abusive language. Leave enough food for a family, reasonable portion for their maintenance. Distinguish between the rich and the poor, and able-bodied blacks can assist through their supply, though their supply needs will be secondary. In other words, when freed slaves come aboard, as he expects them to, um, that the food is going to favor the soldiers, but that they can assist in various ways. And they do, in fact. The men of the Pioneer Corps uh, build roads, corduroy roads, through swamps that are almost impossible to imagine to us today with transverse logs laid in muck, sometimes three layers deep, and then overlaid with wooden rails to get wagons across. And the Pontoneers also manage this amazing feat of fording rivers using canvas boats, also tied with, uh, together with these things. It's balks and chests. Those are the terms for it to get across major rivers. One of these rivers, the Ogeechee, which you can see, I don't know if you need me to point to it, but I'm going to anyway. The Ogeechee River right there is forded seven times. And in fact, overall, there are nine rivers that are forded, but some multiple times, up to 20 to 30 rivers being forded by men such as that preacher I mentioned, John Height, who is the chaplain of the Pontoneer um, of the 58th Indiana uh, volunteer infantry who are working as pontoneers. So he's established this tremendous logic, this way of penetrating into the South, which has been called, one person said, no such army of its type had been seen since the days of Julius Caesar. And who said that? It was Joseph Johnston, the Confederate general. So Sherman achieves a signal success in all of these things. The one thing he doesn't do is keep all of his men under control. Now, there's a question of whether Sherman really wants to. The men are fired up for revenge because they have seen what multiple years of war can do. They despise the fire eater, the fire eaters, the southern politicians who defend slavery and attack the United States. And a lot of them have a long history of animus toward uh, the Confederacy, and often for good reason. So the question is, how tightly does he keep these men on leash. Are they going to follow orders, or are they going to uh, just basically do what they want, depending on the, the um, proclivities of their commanders? Well, to answer that question briefly, it depends. It really depends on which core commander we're talking about. It depends on which captain of whatever company we're talking about, about how rigorously these ideas are enforced. Some men do enforce them vigorously. In fact, there's a quote here that uh, I can't resist because this is from the man who helped pull down Atlanta smokestacks and uh, depots and factories, and the guy named Orlando Poe, who invented a battering, battering ram for that purpose, who invented a cant hook, which is a wrench 
or taking these railroad ties, heating them up in the middle over fires and twisting them so they can't be used. He's basically a genius of destructive warfare. And Orlando Poe, Sherman's chief engineer, and the man he had wanted to burn Atlanta, ordered to burn Atlanta, is disgusted at the officers who winked at their troops, brash thievery, or even encouraged it. In other words, men are going into private houses, and some of them, the true rogues, are threatening the inhabitants at the point of bayonets, that they not only give them their food from their larders or their corn cribs and things like that, which is allowed, but rather they tell them where the jewelry is and where the treasure is. And if they don't, if they don't reveal it, then they threaten the slaves in their uh, capacity to try to do that as well. And other men commit other, members, uh, other types of abuse. And our northern soldiers write about it in their journals. This isn't coming from the south. So Captain Poe says, he writes to his wife, describing his effort to stop it. He says, I lose my temper and make pretty free use of my physical strength with, with, with which providence has blessed me as more than one bunged up face in the army can testify. This is a great image of this you know, burly man beating people up who are trying to rob southern civilians in ways that Sherman doesn't intend. And he's not the only one. An even more severe enforcer of the rules is the man with one arm I showed you earlier, Oliver Howard, who's commanding the right wing of Sherman's forces, the Army of the Tennessee, the 15th Corps, and the 17th Corps. In many ways, the most important corps in this for reasons I'll get to. And Howard, lays out his own special field order called number 26. And he vows to shoot pillagers and enforce rules against illicit forage and punish thieves and arsonists under the threat of death. So he is going to rigorously enforce this. And he does for those troops that he can individually see. Unfortunately, he's commanding an entire half of an army in the uh, Army of the Tennessee, and he can only do so much. For other people, the abuses become legion, and this starts to get into trouble for Sherman. Even some of the northern newspapers, while cheering his uh, destruction of infrastructure, have some issues with the conduct of some of the troops and the command and control of those troops. And I want to give you an example of one, uh, one such example that uh, a man named Aidan Underwood of a Massachusetts infantry regiment says, he says, at Louisville, a scene of chaos ensued after a lively campaign of plunder in which, quote, foragers came in loaded down with ham and quarters of pigs and sheep, hogs and reams full of vegetables, with mules girdled with turkeys and chickens, and trundling in real barrels, soft barrels of syrup and wash tubs full of honey. The looters ransacked mansions, drank the rare wine they found there, and made off with the carpets and bed quilts and even danced a rough waltz in a parlor while some brother rascals were pounding out music out of the $500 piano with musket butts. And a lot of the troops left their booty along the side of the road after they were done with it. And so some of the roadways concluded with this uh, treasure of war. Now I have to emphasize, this is a minority of troops. Most of the men are not like this. Most of the men are good soldiers. We have to remember that Sherman's campaign properly executed as it was by the majority of troops, does not result in this. But it doesn't take more than a few companies of men doing this for the army to acquire a bad reputation. Now, why does this matter? I mean, clearly Sherman's campaign works. This is a, this is a work of genius, of military strategy. 
And Sherman is rightfully regarded as one of the founders of modern warfare because he understands this idea of exhaustion and how to exhaust the military resources of the enemy. But it matters politically, and it matters in the long run, because the war will end, and these stories won't. And so the southern civilians that are left behind are going to burn with fury over this. And that's going to prevent the successful reunification of the country comfortably. And it's going to result in a lot of feelings of revenge, as doubtless you would have feelings of revenge if somebody came in and stole your treasure from under your floorboards or poked into the dirt to try to find it with their bayonets if it was under freshly turned soil. And so people have a lot of trouble with this in the South. And in ways that actually matter, not just because of a defeated enemy, but that will matter for the post-war environment. And so it's important that we learn this distinction, because Sherman is not a madman. His strategy is not rogue. He has created a strategy that is successful and approved by the president and his commanding general, Grant. And yet the abuses take place anyway, and that is part of the reason why his reputation is colored in a way that other men like U.S. Grant, and even other men who destroyed material infrastructure like Philip Sheridan, don't have that same uh, amount of notoriety historically. So back to the campaign. This is important because this map, which I really like, shows this particular line. This is the 15th Corps. And the 15th Corps, aside from fighting in Griswoldville, isn't like the other corps in the army. These are hardy men. This is where Sherman himself comes from, where Grant commanded, and John Logan up until the point where he was sent back to campaign for President Lincoln as a politician for the reelection of uh, Lincoln in 1864. There's a great, uh, to all of you particular strategy buffs out there, there is a great um, essay on this by a guy named Edward Schwabe. Do you know him? It's Naval War College, and it's about the operational role of Sherman's right wing. And he said that this is the secret uh, right hook of Sherman's forces, because not only do they capture Fort McAllister, they and William Hazen of the 2nd Division of the 15th Corps, but they also show incredible maneuverability around in very difficult country. You have to remember that this is the agricultural heart of Georgia. This is the breadbasket. This is where the corn comes from. This is where the munitions factories are. But the 15th Corps, they're traveling around really desolate land. A lot of that is pine barrens and eventually swamps. And they have a hard time. And Charles Wills, who writes about it in his diary, he, and usually he's quite, uh, what's the word for it, cavalier in his descriptions of military life. He's troubled by the horror of it. And if horror isn't the right word, let me just say the difficulty of it. Because what they're doing is they're essentially going off map from where the, where the Confederates know. Confederates know these troops are here. The cavalry is harassing them. And uh, conversely, the, uh, the destruction is widespread. But the 15th Corps. When they get to Fort McAllister, they truly sneak up on the enemy, and they take the fort in a heroic charge that I don't have time to describe. But if you are interested in military heroics, it is a great one, because these men are charging against 
trenches and abatis and abatis and palisades and other forms that would, you know, stave off most uh, corpsmen. But they do a pretty good job of capturing it. And Sherman is so excited, he rows out to uh, where Dahlgren's fleet is in uh, in the Atlantic and actually celebrates with him, <laughs> rowing out there on a tiny rowboat. So it's an incredible story, and we have to remember that the 15th Corps is at the heart of how this victory occurs. But the last thing I want to talk about with the March to the Sea is perhaps its most, one of its most enduring aspects, and that is the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, the troops are surging into southern Georgia, but they are not alone. They're being followed by 10 to 20,000 freed slaves. Now, it depends on the Corps that we're talking about, how many people are behind each corps. But because Sherman, in his field orders, has said able-bodied blacks shall assist the march, a lot of these men are used in the Pioneer Corps, while their families march at the back of the corps. Women and children marching with the wagons at the back and the cattle. There are about 5,000 uh, head of cattle that Sherman's men have captured or brought along. And at the front are these men laying down the corduroy roads and helping fell the trees to enable these kind of improvised roadbeds to exist after mile after mile of this. And so they're not only providing that, they're providing intelligence, they're helping the troops hull rice and learn the topography and describing basically who the rebels are and if they're important or not based on their own knowledge. And, but nonetheless, this idea that slaves are just more mouths to feed comes to the fore of certain people's minds. And so it becomes a controversial aspect of the march. But nonetheless, Sherman is fine with it because it advances his idea, which is not to destroy slavery, but to destroy the slavery of southern Georgia as a means of military support for the Confederacy. So he sees slavery as integ integral to that economic system, and he vows to crush it. And this is the best way to do it. However, not all of the men sign on for this. And I will show you. The prime example, there he is, General Jefferson C. Davis. So Davis is, uh, by far, he's a very capable uh, commander. He has served at Jonesboro and helped win that battle south of Atlanta. And he's actually a vigorous enforcer of Sherman's rules. So uh, his 14th Corps is actually one of the lesser corps in terms of uh, men stealing property and things like that uh, against Sherman's orders. However, he is also an accused murderer. He has killed his superior officer, a guy named William Bull Nelson in Louisville, Kentucky. And he would have been tried for the crime, but there weren't enough peers, enough officers, to be there for the jury because of the action in Kentucky being particularly hot. This is around 1862. So somehow he ends up in Sherman's Corps, running the 14th Corps. And he thinks slavery is fine. And he doesn't like black people following him. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And so when he gets to Buckhead Creek, Ebenezer Creek, and these freed slaves are following him, he orders the bridge destroyed after his marchers go through and leaves them on the other side. A lot of them, because they're being pursued by Joseph Wheeler's Confederate cavalry, jump into the water and drown. The others who don't drown are recaptured, sent back to slavery. This isn't just an isolated example. In fact, this example will have national repercussions when Sherman gets to Savannah. I want to emphasize these aren't stories that I just dug up in 2019. 
These were controversies of 1864. And it's important, otherwise we get into revisionist history and you know whether Sherman used the politically correct term or whatever. These were abuses that happened at the time that outraged people, that people wrote about, wrote to their, um, their congressmen, because these men in the army were citizens, after all. And there would be uh, hell to pay, if not hell, at least uh, you know, some amount of trouble that would have to account for. But nonetheless, Sherman and his men march on. This is the cavalry. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Hugh Kilpatrick, General Kilpatrick, is the head of the cavalry. He's a bit of a rogue himself. He's got an interesting story, but I feel like I don't want to go into Kilpatrick, otherwise I'll end up talking too long. But uh, he is, he is a, a very daring general. And Sherman says, he's a hell of a damn fool, but just the kind of man I want to command my cavalry in this campaign. So uh, he manages to uh, also make his fair share of enemies. And he has indeed been booted out of the Eastern Theater when his raids were just a little too chaotic uh, for uh, the people there in that particular theater. So eventually, Sherman gets to. Sherman gets to uh, Savannah, and in Savannah, he is lauded as a hero. He doesn't quite, he, he, he's very quotable. In fact, I missed the two key Sherman quotes. Uh, you know the first one, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. I should have mentioned that earlier. But in Savannah, he offers uh, the president a Christmas present, the city of Savannah, and lists the number of cotton bales and the resources and how it was taken. And Lincoln is stunned and impressed, and he gives all credit to uh, General Sherman. He would like him to use black troops, actually, because black troops are fighting in other theaters. Sherman doesn't want them in his theater, but he's willing to let that go because Sherman is a bit of a celebrity himself. And we have to understand that at this point, the celebrity of William Sherman is part of what gets him in trouble and what gets him in trouble historically because he is a great general, an innovator, a brilliant military mind that should be celebrated, not condemned as a rogue. And yet, unfortunately, on this campaign, he didn't fully execute his orders. And because of that, because he wasn't specific enough in terms of what to do with the freed slaves, he has to account for it. And he does, nationally. So Secretary of War Edwin Stanton comes down to Savannah in December of 1864 and wants to know about this massacre at Ebenezer Creek that the papers are now telling stories of. And he tells him in a letter, or excuse me, Henry Halleck, chief of staff, tells Sherman in a letter that his enemies in Washington claim that you have manifested an almost criminal dislike to the Negro. And this is creating more and more trouble for Sherman. So he has to do something about it. Edwin Stanton comes down, meets with Sherman, meets with General uh, Jefferson Davis. They both say, oh, it was you know, military necessity. You know, nothing really happened here. Just a few people might have jumped off the cliff. And, and ultimately, uh, Stanton's not fully convinced. So he meets with a group of black ministers in Savannah, people who had formerly been enslaved before Sherman got there. And he asks them what they think. Now, it's important to realize at this point that Sherman, regardless of whatever checkered reputation that he has now, liberated more slaves on the ground than any northern abolitionist ever did. So when we dismiss Sherman because of his racism, typically for the time, remember that 10 to 20,000 people were freed by his men who wouldn't have been freed otherwise. They would have had to wait at least another year for the 13th Amendment. So Sherman's on the ground doing these things. So the black ministers feel like they owe him something. So Sherman's waiting outside the door, and they, they 
say what they're going to say, which is that the general has expressed you know, admirable conduct. And Stanton has one final thing to do. So he and Sherman establish a new policy. They co-write it. Both of them seem equally responsible for it. And it will find um, land. It will appropriate land for former slaves along the of, of the South Carolina and Georgia coast, a strip of this land. And this policy will later be known as 40 acres and a mule. Sherman is co-author of this famous policy in American history. And few people know that, but it's important to point out. So the strategy, the march to the sea, has succeeded. And in terms of wrapping this up, and in terms of the legacy of the march and what it means, all of these things are critical to understand. And it's also critical to realize that these armies were, how should I put it, they were a polyglot force, not only in terms of different languages and peoples they had, but also the different um, officers commanding their troops and interpreting Sherman's own orders, and in terms of what happened next. Because most of us are familiar, at least dimly, with the march to the sea. But the troops continued. This is Fort McAllister. Sorry not to show that. It's kind of a Kind of a blurry drawing. This is the Carolinas campaign. So I'm not going to go over this in detail because we don't have time for that. And I, I've probably spoken too long anyway. But the Carolinas campaign is important because during the campaign, we see some of the most extreme violations of Sherman's special field order 120, as well as some of the most heroic attempts to create, to control that disorder. And through South Carolina, South Carolina is very much hated because they have started the revolution, excuse me, the revolution against common sense, known as secession. And, sorry, um, they have started the, re the, uh, the rebellion in uh, 1860 after Lincoln's reelection. A lot of men simply hate South Carolina, they despise it. And I lived there for six years, but I lived in a town when I was a kid that was about there, Greenville, and nobody knew anything about it because Greenville didn't exist then. So, we do remember hearing stories about what Sherman did in terms of burning many towns, many uh, military facilities, and largely because of the, some of the same things that had happened on the March to the Sea. However, the extreme of this happened in Columbia, and Columbia is not Atlanta, which was very intentional in terms of the way Atlanta was destroyed so as rebels could not reoccupy it and use it as a means of supporting the Confederate Army. Columbia was destroyed by accident, and it was a combination of Confederates and Union. And I'm convinced that part of the reason that Sherman's reputation, um, at least in some quarters, is checkered is because of things like Columbia, wherein the retreating cavalry general, uh, Wade Hampton, has ordered the uh, cotton bales to be put in the street and burned so the Yankee can't get them. However, he has second thoughts, so the fires are put out, but not completely, so they're still smoldering in the face of a strong wind. So the members of the 15th Corps enter the city, finding these floating, burning chunks of cotton in the air. If you can imagine this, this is somewhat surreal. And they come in, and one of the first things they see is a group of Union war prisoners from the newly liberated local prison camp by the Confederates men who look like, quote, walking skeletons. And they're horrified by this. And any feelings of revenge being tethered before this point quickly fall away. Add to that the fact that a number of unionists and freed slaves greet them with tubs of whiskey to drink. 
And you can kind of imagine what ensues. So one-third of Colombia burns, but more importantly, several rogue companies end up threatening private citizens and holding them hostage in a few cases. And Sherman knows it has to be controlled at this point, that this has simply gone too far. And one of the men he uses to control it is John Logan. And so Logan and other members of uh, other, other generals uh, command an all-night effort to bring the fires under control and eventually capture and arrest the hundreds of men responsible for doing this. And they do. And finally, we start to get a sense of Sherman beginning to rein in some of these orders and to do more targeting burning of infrastructure. And the people who are rendered homeless by this are given cattle, and uh, Oliver Howard especially tries to help them out. So beyond this, oops, I totally screwed that up. So I was going to say, actually, I want to get that back. But OK, perfect. Thank you. I don't know who did that, but that is. Um, let's go back to that. Beyond that, the men are working their way through South Carolina in horrible torrential conditions. This is an icy rain. It is so hard to get through these swamps. And remember, these men have to make corduroy roads and, and uh, pontoon bridges to cross them. And some men are reduced to disrobing, to taking off their uniforms and holding them at the point of a bayonet while they cross in their underwear. Now, I don't know how widespread this is, but this is at least the story of several men. I'm going to take this as an extreme, but there is no doubt about it that this was one of the difficult campaigns that prompted the Johnston quote that no such army had been seen since the days of Julius Caesar. Their progress is 400 miles in 50 days in those conditions. Eventually, after the burning of Columbia, there it is, not a, kind of a dim picture, they end up in North Carolina. And this is around the time of the surrender. This is actually after Robert E. Lee has surrendered. And Sherman and his men are just basically waiting for the end of, uh, end of the war. And they hear news that Lincoln has been assassinated. Now, it's hard to imagine just how daunting this news was. I mean, some of you may remember JFK, but JFK wasn't fighting a civil war at the time. For Lincoln to be assassinated seems like the ultimate criminal act by the South. And men are infuriated. And some men decide that they need to burn the capital of North Carolina, which is held under truce. But standing in front of them is John Logan. John Logan raises his sword, orders them to desist. They refuse. They march past him. Logan gallops ahead, orders a row of cannon to be placed in the face of these men. Now, this is still technically a time of war, and Logan is so committed to the rules of law, the rules of order, to the command and control of his men that he's willing to sacrifice them to prevent them from violating the truth, truce by sacking Raleigh. And they have no choice but to turn around. And to me, this is a great moment that shows the ultimate recommitment to the command and control at the end of a very successful campaign. In fact, a brilliant campaign is just one that had a few too many lax qualities that prevented Sherman from being the uh, un completely uh, celebrated figure that he should be in terms of military strategy. 
Eventually, they end up in Washington for the Grand Review of the Armies, one a, a heroic and, and memorable event in which the uh, troops of the Eastern Theater come in, looking perfect, shine to the last detail. And Sherman's men come in, some of them barefoot, bloody, dirty with the soil of the South. And people see them for the first time, that these were the men of the Western Theater who helped win the war and that who helped establish a modern means of warfare, not in the abuses that I just talked about, but rather in the successes and the triumphs and the idea of going after the infrastructure and the idea of the campaign of exhaustion and also the idea of freeing slaves. So the war ends up achieving a dual purpose. Not only is it for abolition, a point that an increasing number of men begin to see, but also for the unity of the country and the st stitching back together the bonds that had been severed, not just because of Fort Sumter, but in the decades prior. In fact, going all the way back to the Constitution, which doesn't forbid slavery. All of these things the Civil War solves, and in some ways, people have called the Civil War the second American Revolution, because it was a revolution to finally justify those things that were mentioned in the, in the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and through the drawing out of a lot of blood, the execution of that final creation of these ideas that we all hold so dear. And so I'd like to, off, to end by offering praise for the general with a, a bit, with an asterisk, explaining just why he is uh, regarded with uh, some hesitation. But researching the book has been uh, very valuable to me, and it was great to be able to present these ideas to you today. So thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just a few minutes for uh, questions and answers. Uh, as I said before, if you raise your hand, I'll come around with the microphone uh, so you can ask your question. Who'd like to get us started out? Right here in the back. Thank you. How and where were Sherman's journals preserved? How and where were Sherman's journals? Now, you mean um, his letters or his memoirs? You stated that he had written a journal during his campaigns, and I'm thinking more along that line. Well, my book was drawn from his letters, which are part of the official records of the War of the Rebellion, as well as his memoirs. Now, are you familiar with a journal? I mean, I haven't, okay. Okay. Uh, what the Army did for him was collect all of the orders mm -hmm. and Correct. found yeah. And a lot of those come from the official records yeah, as well. Are, yeah. yeah. The official records, should you care to download them, are available. They're in hundreds of volumes. I mean, there's a huge number of records, but they are the essential guide to the conflict. You don't even re If you have a patience for reading uh, orders and correspondence, that is the uh, best way to understand the Civil you did, War. You did mention the value of his letters. That is correct. The letters are also critical. Those are in a, um, a bound volume that you actually, uh, Carl, highlight in the hallway there. You have, you have his uh, letters. Okay. All right, do we have, we have one right here in front. Thank you. Do you have a sense of who his military idols were? Sherman's military idols. Uh, oh, God. I don't know that I got into that. But I have to say that at the beginning of the campaign, uh, a number of people had 
idolized the ideas of, uh, you know, European Napoleonic tactics like Jomini and other things like that in terms of how you're supposed to properly conduct a campaign. A lot of uh, generals had lived under the idea that you were supposed to have massed uh, infantry charges because the weapons weren't that accurate at the time. They were smooth bore. But unfortunately, a lot of the early uh, heroes of the generals um, kind of fell by the wayside simply because they were conducting a new campaign with rifled mus musketry, which was much more um, accurate. And also the type of um, big guns that they were using had canister in them and uh, like howitzers especially, basically giant shotguns. Okay. Yes, on your map, uh, one town jumped out at me and that was Andersonville. Yes. Was there any consideration of going there? I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, you know, it would have been really nice if Sherman had actually gone to Andersonville as a number of people had wanted him to. Andersonville was not liberated, and there is a question of if it had been liberated, or if he had attempted to liberate it, whether there would be anyone there. Because what you have to remember is, I want to bring the, uh, the map back so we can take a look at this. What we have to remember is that at Camp Lawton, which is actually more important to the march uh, strategically than Andersonville, which is quite far from it. Camp Lawton was liberated, and uh, it, it was empty of prisoners. But they found freshly dug graves there. And so that heightened the feeling of revenge for these men. And the nearest town, which was Millen, was shortly destroyed afterward because of this. So there's no doubt that the towns around Andersonville probably would have been, um, probably would have been burned had they liberated it. But no, there was, uh, I can't find any evidence that says that Andersonville was a target. All right, we have one over here. Yes, what did uh, Sherman uh, do or attempt to do post-war, and how did his reputation during these campaigns help or hinder those efforts or well, endeavors? Yeah, good question. Uh, the most important part of that for me is that Sherman became the uh, General-in-Chief of the U.S. Army from 1869 to 1883, and in that capacity, he basically oversaw a number of Indian wars in the West, in the Great Plains, and I could get into that, but that's still a controversial aspect of the, journal, of the General's career and uh, needless to say, he oversaw Philip Sheridan, and Sheridan did some things that are still controversial. And we can link them to the idea of hard war, although it's, diff it's, it's different because a number of the circumstances are different. But that is what he did. And then after that, he ended up in New York City. And uh, I believe he died there. And of course, in New York City, that's where after his death, they put in the heroic sculpture um, in Central Park, which has, it was just gilded. <laughs> and shows the figure of uh, victory in front of it, which is the model is actually an ex-slave, and a crushing on the rear hoof of the horse is a pine bough of Georgia. So you can see it if you visit New York City anytime soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. Yes, when uh, Sherman left Atlanta and divided his forces, uh, didn't he take all the best equipment and best soldiers on his drive and leave uh, Thomas with basically uh, really nothing to work with? Well, Thomas got the, uh, the bulk of the Army of the Cumberland. And this gets back into something that there's like inner army politics here that I didn't mention, but I will briefly. Sherman had less respect for the Army of the Cumberland than he had for the Army of the Tennessee. The Army of the Tennessee was his 
originally, before he became commander of the military division of the Mississippi. And so he always, I don't, I wouldn't really downplay the abilities of the men of the Cumberland. I mean, they did win Chattanooga after all. You know, while Sherman was up on Billy Goat Hill, he actually picked the wrong hill. And, uh, you know, Pat Claiborne, Pat Cleburne, the uh, Irish general, Irish rebel general, had a field day with that. But I will say that I think there were more than capable men who went up to Nashville, and they performed admirably at, at Franklin. I mean, that's the Army of the Ohio, too, at Franklin and Nashville. And what Sherman ultimately did was not just using some of his best veterans as he saw them, but he stripped the Army down. He sent um, the injured men north. He got rid of the nurses. He got rid of anything extra. And I could go on to how he stripped it and the fact that men left a lot of their knapsacks behind, a lot of their personal belongings, and traveled very light. And of course, most importantly, he didn't travel with a supply train, and he cut himself off from communications with Washington. So these were all daring and uh, adventurous things for him to do, and part of the reason that his reputation is so uh, sterling in terms of military, um, in military aspects. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to invite our director, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, to come up and have a few words. So, uh, so uh, don't go away, sir. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was just backing away a little bit. Yes. So, uh, so thank you so much for your thank presentation you. tonight and uh, in bringing this this really to life and presenting some new aspects of Sherman uh, in the Army that we may not have considered previously. So. Uh, as, is, uh, as is Army tradition, we often acknowledge excellence with the presentation of a coin. And so we're, we would appreciate if you would accept this. I would love uh, to accept this. A, a wonderful coin. That's terrific. Thank you very much. This was an... This is an honor to be here and honoring the memory of Dr. Kleber. And I'm so happy to be able to talk about this to you this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.